Get ready for a one-of-a-kind experience. Welcome, welcome to the Starter Zone, your home for the weekly news from around the world. Your host for this journey, Amanda. Welcome to 2024. She's going to bring you everything you need to hear about entertainment, gaming, and maybe just a little bit bizarre. Hold tight, because here she comes. Thank you so much, Raven, for that warm, warm welcome. Hello there, my friends. Good day to you all. Welcome back to the Starter Zone. I am your guide, Amanda. Great to see you all after the New Year's, and welcome to 2024. And now it is time to bring you some headlines from all of the entertainment news sources. So today is the 4th of January. Let's take a look at some of the news we will be covering. Taylor Swift has broken another record. Kelly Clarkson helps with a wedding. We've got a coach in the strip clubs, some bad refereeing, a misbehaving NFL team owner, a new boss at Activision. Paula Abdul is filing a lawsuit. We have a little bit of a shakeup at the box office and more. Get comfy, my friends, and let's get started. Let's start things off with some music news. Taylor Swift, she's been a pretty busy lady this last year. I mean, she's got this epic tour that's going on. She's got a new boyfriend. And now she's got a new record. Taylor has broken Elvis Presley's long-standing record for the most weeks spent atop the Billboard 200 album chart by a solo artist. She set the new mark of 68 total weeks as 1989 Taylor's version landed on top of the chart for a fifth time in the final full tracking week of 2023. Pretty impressive numbers, but although Swift set the new record for an individual, the ultimate high watermark among all artists is still held by the Beatles, whose albums have spent 132 weeks on top of the Billboard 200. Presley's 67 weeks now puts him in second place among solo recording artists and third place among all acts. 1989 Taylor's version registered about 98,000 album equivalent units for the week ending on December the 28th. And of those 98,000 units for the week, 61,000 were in full album sales. Now, that was boosted by this last-minute surge of Christmas gift purchases. Merry Christmas to those lucky fans, right? So let's switch over to Kelly Clarkson. Now, Kelly is currently performing a series of concerts in Las Vegas. And back on the 31st, she got to be part of a pretty special event. At her show, which is called Chemistry and Intimate Evening, two men got hitched with the help of the Since You've Been Gone singer as a witness. In an audience video from the show, fans Brian and Marcelo explained that they've been together for 15 years and that they hope to get married with Clarkson's assistance during the show. Oh, it's tonight, she excitedly confirmed the couple's wedding. With me, she says. A man whom the couple brought as an officiant steps forward towards Clarkson, and she tells him to say something and hands him the microphone. Let's have a little bit of a listen. We gather here today. Brian, what's your name? Martello. Brian, 
do you take Martella to, Martella to be your lawful wedded husband forever till death do you part? The video is absolutely adorable watching the couple with their officiate and Clarkson just standing right beside him. And right after the vows were said, Clarkson approached the officiant's mother and enthusiastically said, look what your baby just did. The singer wished the newlyweds good luck before returning to her performance. Clarkson released her 10th studio album, Chemistry, in 2023. And in support of the album, the singer began her first ever residency in July at the Box Theater in Las Vegas, playing 10 shows in the summer before adding four additional shows, two at the end of December and two more in February. Now, let's go check in on some sports news. In the great state of Texas, sports are just a very big thing. It's a very big part of everyday life. And being a coach of a Texas team can just bring this sense of power and prestige, even at the high school level. But sometimes things can get just a little out of control. Enter coach J.D. Bales. Now, This former high school soccer coach in Texas was arrested after spending more than $5,000 at a Houston strip club with his school district credit card. Yeah, he took the credit card that the school district gave him and went to go see the strippers. Okay. J.D., a former coach at Bridgeport High School, reportedly received felony theft charges after a $5,455.81 spending spree at the Men's Club of Houston with the taxpayer-funded credit card. Bales was reportedly in town to attend a coaching clinic. I don't think the clinic was being held at the club, though. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. He first reportedly told the school district and the bank that the charge was fraudulent, and then he resigned from both his coaching role and his position as a special educator and PE teacher back in September of 2023. Investigators later said they found substantial evidence that the expense was legitimate, leading to Bales' arrest. According to the Bridgeport Police Chief Steve Stanford, he said during the investigation, which included information that Bales had formerly claimed the charge was fraudulent with both the school and financial institution, investigators discovered evidence indicating a criminal offense occurred. Bales eventually submitted payment for the charge, however... Due to the overwhelming evidence in the case, most importantly, the case involving taxpayer money, I believe it was prudent to submit the case to the Wise County District Attorney, unquote. Now, Wise County Jail reportedly released Bales on a $10,000 bond. But that's not all Bales has been involved in. He apparently has a little bit of a history. Students in Bales' soccer program were arrested back in May of 23 over allegations of hazing. A two-month investigation of the team reportedly led to six different arrests after prosecutors found several players had participated in restraining and depancing a new team member. According to Police Chief Stanford, he said these incidents involved the underclassmen, some as young as 14 years old, being restrained or held down, while multiple subjects removed articles of the victim's clothing, including their pants and their underwear. The victim reported that while in an unclothed state, they were filmed and made to repeat phrases such as, I am your the B-word. They they said, I'm your B-word. Anyway, the Bridgeport Police Department did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Dude, y'all, that is brutal. Those poor kids, I'm serious. That was traumatizing as a kid to be dependent. I mean, how many kids have those nightmares 
where you're standing in front of a class and you're scared because you're doing a public speaking and you're you're supposed to imagine everybody in their underwear because it's supposed to you know break at the ice and then it backfires and you're the one in your underwear i mean it's humiliating this is one coach that is definitely not a role model okay well not a good one anyway so the nfl has had a pretty dominant hold over professional football for quite some time and an attempt to give the nfl some real competition came back in 2018 with the formation of the XFL, the Extreme Football League, under the ownership of Vince McMahon of WWE fame. Yeah, that guy. And that league, it did okay for a bit, but after only five weeks of play in the inaugural 2020 season, the league abruptly had to cease play because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And they ended up filing for bankruptcy on April the 13th of 2020. Now, also, the United States Football League, the USFL, was formed in 2022, and in its two seasons of operations as a standalone league, it operated eight teams. That league was owned by the National Spring Football League Enterprises Company, LLC, which is a subsidiary of Fox Corporation's sports unit, Fox Sports. Now, as for the XFL, in August of 2020, Actor Dwayne Johnson, also known as The Rock, along with longtime business partner and ex-wife Danny Garcia, led a consortium to purchase the XFL for $15 million. The league resumed play on February 18th of 2023, positioned as a minor league. But Johnson, he had some bigger plans. If you smell what The Rock is cooking. Oh, he had something cooking, all right. He had a business deal ready to go. On September the 28th of 2023, the XFL announced its intention to merge with the USFL. And on November the 30th of 23, the leagues issued a statement that they had completed the antitrust review process in connection with the proposed merger and intended to play a combined season kicking off Saturday, March the 30th and they were finalizing the terms of a definitive agreement. On December the 31st, the name of the combined league was confirmed as the United Football League, with each component league surviving as a conference within the UFL. The 2024 UFL season is scheduled to begin March 30th of 2024, with a matchup between the 2023 XFL champion, the Arlington Renegades, and the 2023 USFL champion, the Birmingham Stallions. Dwayne Johnson and Danny Garcia revealed the plans on Fox's NFL pregame show, confirming that the league would broadcast on Fox, ESPN, ABC, and Fox Sports 1. However, specific details about the number of teams and the representing cities are being held a little close to the vest and will be revealed in a later date. I think, honestly, this could be successful. I remember the launch of the XFL. I was a big WWE fan at the time, so this was huge, and it was fun to watch. Um, I think there was just a little too much wrestling involved for people to really take it seriously, but I think they played the cards right. This could be absolutely huge, and maybe we'll see a a true competitor to the NFL. In that case, there's only 87 more days until official kickoff. All right, sticking with the NFL – Back on the 31st, the Carolina Panthers lost really, really badly to the Jacksonville Jaguars, losing the final score 26-0, and the fans, not happy. And honestly, neither was the owner of the Panthers. Nothing went right in this game for Carolina. And had Jacksonville not gone one for five scoring in the red zone, the outcome would have been just way more lopsided, but they just they couldn't convert in the red zone. Bryce Young, quarterback for Carolina, he completed 19 of 32 passes for a total of 112 yards with an interception, and he was sacked six times. That brings his season total to a whopping 59 sacks. Carolina even had issues before the coin flip. Kicker Eddie Pinheiro injured his right hamstring in the pregame warm-up and was unable to go. Cornerback J.C. Horn had a bad toe, late scratch after warm-ups. Guard Cade Mays 
left with a finger injury. Then linebacker Marquise Haynes, a six-year pro who grew up in Jacksonville, was carted off the field in the third quarter with a concussion. Defensive lineman Derek Brown got ejected, along with Jacksonville left tackle Cam Robinson late in the fourth quarter. They kind of got into it and ripped off each other's helmets after a play. So, yeah, that's an ejection. Absolute mess. And with all this frustration, Panthers owner David Tepper is at the game. He's in the box. He's in the suite above the field. And he, his temper really, really kind of got the best of him. Uh, he threw the contents of his drink into the crowd near the end of the game. The reaction came after the rookie, Bryce Young, was intercepted with less than three minutes to play. It was unclear whether Tepper was reacting to something that was said to him or just this latest miscue for the team with the NFL's worst record. General Manager Scott Fitterer was standing near Tepper when he tossed the remnants of the drink while watching the game from the club suite. As a result, well, the NFL ended up fining Tepper $300,000 for tossing the drink. It's not as The league went on to call Tepper's conduct unacceptable in a statement that was released. The statement said all NFL personnel are expected to conduct themselves at all times in ways that respect our fans and favorably reflect on their team and the NFL. Pretty well said. But now we're going to back up one day to December the 30th. The Detroit Lions lost 20-19 to the Dallas Cowboys, and this game also was not without controversy. Referee Brad Allen, remember that name, and his crew of officials have had multiple game-changing calls that have been hotly debated throughout the season. Look, all of us sports fans, have said not nice things about referees and their calls before. We get pretty hot when, when we see a bad call. But let's go back to this game. The Cowboys' Peyton Hendershot was called for tripping on Aiden Hutchinson. The correct call should have been on Hutchinson instead, and that would have given Dallas the chance to seal the game. But after a Monroe St. Brown touchdown to make it 20-19, to the Lions decided we're going to go for two to take the lead. All right, good call. Late in the game, right? The Lions initially appeared to get this two-point conversion, which would put them ahead of 21-20, to but it got called back when the referees flagged Taylor Decker, who, the guy who caught the pass to convert the two-pointer, as an ineligible receiver, and Dan Skipper for an illegal formation. Now, Decker says... He reported as eligible to Brad Allen, the referee, while Skipper says he didn't speak to Allen at all. In an extensive breakdown of the play, Yahoo Sports' Charles Robinson noted, the video evidence supports Decker's explanation, meaning that Brad Allen appeared to blow the call. In his explanation of the penalties, Allen denied all of this, but dude, it's on video. This is not the first time that Allen and his crew have been involved in an officiating controversy this season. They missed a key pass interference call against the Green Bay Packers back in week 13, which allowed them to defeat the Kansas City Chiefs. Now, playoffs. They're imminent. And according to ESPN, Allen's crew is going to be downgraded out of the postseason. So fans, breathe a sigh of relief, right? Oh, sorry. That's not right. Y'all, we were wrong. And we were wronged. According to ESPN's Adam Schefter, Allen and his crew have been assigned to officiate Saturday's game that's coming up on, this one's January the 6th, between Pittsburgh Steelers and the Baltimore Ravens, which is being aired nationally on ESPN and ABC. So just one week after an officiating mess that could possibly cost the Lions a win, Allen is being given a national TV assignment. The NFL just doing what they do best giving its fans more of what they don't want. All right, our next story. This one's a really sad and tragic one. Bear with me here. Let me introduce you to 32-year-old Olympian Melissa Hoskins. At the age of 23, just six years after she started cycling competitively, Hoskins competed and medaled in several world championships and actually finished fourth 
in the 2012 Summer Olympics back in London. She went on to win the World Championships in 2015 before also competing in the 2016 Summer Olympics in Rio. Two years after that, Hoskins married her husband, fellow Olympian and cyclist Rohan Dennis, in 2018. And in the last five years, the couple, they've welcomed two children in the world. Sounds wonderful, right? Wouldn't be telling you the story if it was all sunshine and roses, now would I? The Australian Olympic Committee released a statement on Twitter saying that Hoskins had reportedly passed away on December the 30th of 2023. And her husband? Well, he's been arrested in connection with her untimely passing. Excuse me? Say what again? According to The Guardian, Hoskins was reportedly hit by a car in Adelaide in Australia back on Saturday the 30th. She was rushed to a nearby hospital with severe injuries, but she later died in that hospital. So now the husband, Dennis, he is facing charges of, let me read these properly here, causing death by dangerous driving, driving without due care, and endangering life. What caused this accident is completely unclear right now, as are several other details of the case. Now, Dennis was released on bail, and he has to appear in the Adelaide Magistrates Court again in March. So what police are alleging is that Hoskins jumped onto the bonnet or the hood of the car and reached for a door handle before the car was driven away and fell to the ground. It's also being further alleged that the mother of two may have been dragged along the road by the vehicle, which is just horrifying. I mean, so now the obvious question that I have is why did Hoskins jump onto the car, not into the car, onto the car? To me, reading this, the basic info release indicates that this is an argument that got out of hand with seriously tragic consequences. My condolences to the family and especially the, the kids in this situation. I don't necessarily want to hear more information, but I really do because I want to find out what happened. So this is going to go on the watch list because I want to see how this one ends we're not going to hear much of anything else i don't think until he goes back to court in march so a little bit of a wait but really sad tragic news that that's just absolutely horrifying to think <clears throat> she jumps onto a car ends up getting dragged just awful all right let's go ahead and move on to a little bit of entertainment news We're going to start off with a story about Paula Abdul. Now, there is a name from my youth. Abdul rose to stardom in the late 1980s after being discovered by the Jackson family. You know, Latoya, Michael, Janet, all those. Abdul was actually the head choreographer of the LA Lakers cheerleading squad. And she was signed to do the choreography for the video to the Jackson's single, Torture. And the success of that choreography in the video led to Paula's career as a choreographer of many, many music videos, really. Uh, notably, Janet Jackson's What Have You Done For Me Lately, uh, Nasty, When I Think Of You, and Control Videos. All favorites of mine, to be honest. And here's a little throwback tidbit that I recently just found out. Paula also choreographed sequences for the giant keyboard scene, scene that involves Tom Hanks' character in Big of 1988. You remember that big, huge, it, it, he danced on the thing, him and there was one other guy. They, in this toy store, they're, they're playing the keyboard with their feet. She choreographed that scene. That scene is iconic, and I had no clue she had anything to do with that, and that's just absolutely awesome. Anyway, it really wasn't long afterwards that she was able to kind of parlay that newfound dancing fame into a singing career. And her videos, to me, were always a pleasure to watch. I mean, she's really just that good. There was even that really racy one. Y'all remember that? So several years go by and she's had a very successful singing career and choreography career. So Paula went and built a second career as a judge of reality show competitions in the early 2000s. But Paula's now back in the news, and it's not for good reasons. 
Paula Abdul has alleged in a lawsuit that she filed Friday the 29th of, uh, of December that she was twice sexually assaulted by Nigel Lithgow, the executive producer of American Idol and So You Think You Can Dance. All right, now, heads up, the next segment is a little graphic. I'll wait a moment. All right, you ready? Okay. In the suit, she's alleging that during one of the early seasons of American Idol, Lithgow sexually assaulted her in an elevator of a hotel. She alleges that he shoved her against the wall, groped her breasts and genitals, shoved his tongue down her throat. And according to the suit, she tried to push him away. And as soon as the hotel door opened, she ran to her room. So fast forward a little bit. Years later, she's a judge now on So You Think You Can Dance. And Lithgow invited her to his home for dinner. She accepted thinking this is going to be completely professional encounter. However, according to the suit, Lithgow forced himself on top of her while she was sitting on his couch. He attempted to kiss her and said that they would make a great, quote, power couple, unquote. Again, pushed him away and fled his home. Now, for his part, Lithgow, he's denying the allegations in a statement that he released on December the 30th, in which he cited Abdul's history of erratic behavior. He said, quote, To say I am shocked and saddened by the allegations made against me by Paul Abdul is a wild understatement. For more than two, gay, two decades, Paula and I have interacted as dear and entirely platonic friends and colleagues. Yesterday, however, out of the blue, I learned of these claims in the press, and I want to be clear. Not only are they false, they are deeply offensive to me and to everything I stand for. While Paula's history of erratic behavior is well known, I can't pretend to understand exactly why she would file a lawsuit that she must know is untrue but I can promise that I will fight this appalling smear with everything I have, unquote. The suit also accuses Lithgow of verbal harassment and bullying and alleges that Abdul was discriminated against and was paid less than the male judges on American Idol. It further alleges that the show would ha have been edited in a misleading, misleading way that made her kind of come across as really inept. Additionally, she alleges that she witnessed Lithgow sexually assaulting one of her assistants back in April of 2015, pressing the assistant up against the wall and groping her without consent as well. The lawsuit states, quote, for years, Abdul has remained silent about the sexual assaults and harassment she experienced on account of Lithgow due to the fear of speaking out against one of the most well-known producer, producers of television competition shows who could easily break her career as a television personality and of being ostracized and blackballed by an industry that had a pattern of protecting powerful men and silencing survivors, uh, survivors of sexual assault and harassment, unquote. The suit alleges that Lithgow's behavior was common knowledge and even cited a mad TV parody in which Lithgow was seen harassing the contestants on the show. According to the suit, Lithgow called Abdul once and taunted her, saying it had been seven years and the statute of limitations had run out. Abdul signed a non-disclosure dis, uh, non agreement as part of her employment on both of the reality shows, which prevented her from disclosing confidential or derogatory information. But Abdul filed the suit under California's Sexual Abuse and Cover-Up Accountability Act, which created a one-year window to file certain sexual abuse lawsuits that would have otherwise been outside the statute of limitations. And the deadline to file was December 31st. If I recall correctly, New York has also enacted a similar thing. So we saw a rash of lawsuits pop up towards the end of the year, alleging a lot of similar things for different people. We're going to be covering all those as those pop up as well. But that's not all. Abdul is also suing 19 Entertainment, Fremantle Media North America, American Idol Productions, and Dance Nation Productions. The suit's alleging that these companies failed to take steps to discipline Lithgow and protected, protected him from accountability. She's not the only one. Two more women have filed sexual assault lawsuits against Nigel days after Paula filed her lawsuit. On Tuesday, January the 2nd, Jane Doe KG and Jane Doe KN accused Lithgow of sexual assault battery, sexual harassment, 
and negligence stemming from an alleged attack in May of 2003. At the time, they were contestants on ABC's talent show competition All-American Girl, which aired for only one season in 2003 and was produced by Lithgow. In the lawsuit filed in the Los Angeles Superior Court, Lithgow is referred to under the pseudonym John Rowe N.L. The Jane Doe's allege that Lithgow drove them to his home in Los Angeles after the All-American Girl finale party instead of a studio to meet the others, according to the documents obtained by USA Today. Once they were at his home, the contestant said that he made several sexual advances to both of them, including an attempt to kiss Jane Doe KG and pushing her body really close to his. The contestants did not consent to that contact on any occasion, according to the filing. Pretty heavy accusations coming in for this producer. And I'm wondering now if more accusers are going to come forward, especially uh, with this whole California act. But I know the deadline was the 31st. That just means that maybe they haven't been reported on yet. Um, You always want to presume, and this is a word of caution, you always want to presume innocence when a potential crime has been committed. But even I'm going to admit, it's kind of hard to ignore when more and more people start telling their story. So that one is going to take a little bit to see a resolution. I'm almost expecting to see a settlement out of court just due to the nature of the accusations as well as how many are starting to come out. I mean, so far we only got only have the three. And you could say that they're just all like, oh, she put hers in. We're going to dogpile on that and see if we can get some money out of it. It has happened before. But I'll check back with this one as we find out more information. Let's head over now and download some gaming news. An NBA 2K player has reportedly filed a class action lawsuit against publisher Take-Two for theft with regard to the franchise's microtransactions. Yay, microtransactions. Microtransactions have just become this big hot-button issue within the gaming community throughout recent years with the rise of online gaming and particularly the prevalence of live service and mobile games. Many of the biggest modern games also now include these microtransactions, you know, in some form, ranging from EA Sports' football club's ultimate team mode to cosmetics in games like Mortal Kombat 1. But now one fan is taking legal action against a sports gaming juggernaut. Like many modern sports games, the NBA 2K series heavily features microtransactions as part of its online gaming mode. Players can use the NBA 2K's in-game virtual coin currency to like, upgrade their players in the My Career mode, allowing players to purchase skill points to make their in-game characters just better. The game's My Team mode functions pretty similarly to the Ultimate Team gaming mode found in EA Sports' games, which allows fans to purchase packs to add in-game players to their team. But now there's this one fan, really young guy, and his mom are taking take two to court over these what they call predatory microtransactions. This is being reported by Axios. There's a minor uh, in California being represented by their mother, and they have officially filed a class action lawsuit against Take-Two over the microtransactions. And the lawsuit focuses in particular on this virtual currency and the inability to carry games over from one of the annual, annual games to the next one. So if they buy something in you know, 2K22, they can't move it over to 2K23. With me so far? Okay. Lawsuit refers to Take-Two as unfair, illegal and greedy, also citing the closure of older games' online servers. The removal of any leftover currency is classified as theft within the suit, serving as the main basis behind the legal complaint. So they're saying you can't transfer this currency from one game to another. So what do you do when they shut down the servers, but you still had currency left over in your bank? Okay, I get where they're coming from. So the newfound legal action against the NBA 2K publisher would not be the first time that a disgruntled fan has taken Take-Two to court. Now, last year, NBA 2K's virtual currency was the subject of a similar lawsuit. 
taking aim at the pricing of the NBA 2K games in addition to the currency. The 2022 suit held a similar claim regarding the predatory nature of the microtransaction-based online gameplay. Despite retailing for the same price as other AAA games, the lawsuit was eventually settled through arbitration with the resolution of that settlement not known to the public. We weren't told what happened with that. Take-Two's upcoming legal predicament is coming as NBA 2K franchise's newest entry has seen this really rocky start. The earliest months following the launch of NBA 2K24 has just been plagued with bugs and glitches, causing a huge amount of fan backlash. NBA 2K24 even became Steam's lowest-rated game, taking the dubious honor away from Overwatch 2, with many fans calling 2K24 a copy-paste of the previous year's game. Now, NBA 2K24's launch woes look to continue as Take-Two is going to have to defend itself in court. Now, speaking of the 2K franchise, January 3rd was a pretty sad day for WWE 2K fans, as that's the day the online servers for 2K22 shut down. There was a lot writing on 2K22 prior to this game's launch, and it was the first WWE 2K game after the disastrous 2K20 game, and reports indicated that the WWE was even considering the game a make-or-break for 2K Sports. Had 2K22 failed to meet expectations, it was actually believed that the WWE video game license would be shopped elsewhere, potentially to their competitor, EA Games. However, WWE 2K22 released two mostly positive reviews and has been generally hailed as a major return to form for the popular wrestling game series. Not only did WWE 2K22 enjoy a positive reaction from the fans and the critics, it also had really strong sales ensuring that the video game license was going to stay with 2K for at least the foreseeable future. Now, WWE 2K22 was followed up by 2K23, which was also really well received. 2K Sports has been on a roll with the WWE video games these past couple of years, which makes the shutdown decision of the 2K22 online servers so soon really just disappointing and a little confusing. Well, this past September, it was announced that the 22 servers would be shut down on January 3rd. And with this being less than two years after 2K22 first launched, fans, they were understandably outraged. But ultimately, the decision to shut down the online servers was not reversed and went forward. I'll be honest, the online servers being shut down, this is pretty devastating. I mean, while us fans are still going to have access to the offline content, we're going to lose the ability to play matches online and download community creations. These were some pretty key components of the 2K22 experience. And so to have them being taken away less than two years after the game's been on the market, just absolutely frustrating. But it also is making us lose a little bit of faith in the future of these 2K installments. After all, why should we invest our time and our money on a game if the online functionality is going to go away before it's even two years old? The tweet announcing the closure of the servers ended with a plug for WWE 2K23, which, as one might imagine, kind of rubbed us a little bit the wrong way. And there are many of us who are still a little worried that 2K23 is going to suffer a similar fate not long after 2K24 comes out, though that, you know, that's going to remain to be seen. Maybe there was something going on in the background we didn't know about that they felt best to go ahead and just shut the servers down. As it stands, though, 2K24 still has yet to be officially announced, and speculations pointing to the reveal happening around the Royal Rumble sometime later this month in January. So the new game will likely be announced just a couple weeks after the servers are now offline. But hopefully, the servers being shut down so soon after launch is an exception to the rule, and we don't have to worry about losing access to the online content in 2K23 or in any future games that come out. All right, switching over a little bit of news from Activision. Guys, Bobby Kotick is officially out. That's right. 
December the 29th, he officially retired. And honestly, no one is more happier than the employees. Many are airing their grievances with the former leader. And among the many scandals and incidences that Kotick weathered, it would seem that Overwatch 2's team was completely left to hang out and dry when it came to launching the game on Steam, according to some emerging reports. And while, honestly, this all right, this doesn't come as a surprise, it's still, it's just, it's heartbreaking. If it's true for the developers who poured themselves into the game, at least. So before diving into the allegations, I should take a moment to note, Kotick did resuscitated a bankrupt company back in 1992. He took control of Activision for just a total of $440,000 at the time. For context, Microsoft just acquired Activision Blizzard for a whopping $69 billion, that's billions with a B, which is a massive 156818 time increase over the original purchase price. Not bad. Kotick was quoted back in 2009 saying, bringing a lot of the packaged goods folks into Activision about 10 years ago was to take all the fun out of making video games, which, in his opinion, fostered a culture of thrift. More recently, in 2021, Activision Blizzard drew some flack from the gaming community for laying off employees while Kotick was set to receive a $200 million payout as a shareholder value creation incentive. This was followed later in the year by a sexual harassment scandal that netted the head of then-Blizzard president J. Allen Brack, but Kotick seemingly escaped. It's fairly safe to say that while the Activision Blizzard company has experienced some tremendous growth under Kotick. The company may not have had the healthiest culture. Perhaps Microsoft can change that with a recent acquisition, but I digress. With Kotick stepping down after 32 years in the industry, the folks have started coming forward with some of the inside um, information at Activision. For example, a community development manager by the name of Andy Belford took to ex-Twitter to explain the woes faced by the Overwatch 2 team, which included concerns about review bombing, which is what happened. Chiefly, these concerns were ignored months before launch, and Steam moderation was left to the community team. This decision was reportedly due to Kotick and fell in line with his reported culture of crap flowed downstream, usually landing on the lowest paid and most overworked individuals. Kotick's apparently goal, his apparent goal this entire time was to draw profits. I mean, regardless of player or employee experience. And it was always about the market value and not necessarily creativity in the industry, which is not a great way to create games. Look, I understand gaming is a business, so it makes sense. He wants to make money, right? But in any, in any event, it's probably good Kotick's gone as it will hopefully relieve some of the pressures developers were feeling at Activision Blizzard, and maybe we'll see this reflected in games coming from the studio in the future, but only time's going to tell. I mean, we just had this merger happen, so we don't know what's going to happen with the with the outcome. They're still working on projects that were being worked on prior to the acquisition, so um, looking forward to seeing what changes, if any, are going to come out. All right, friends, let's go head over to the box office. It's time box office breakdown last weekend in the box office was a pretty big one for aquaman 2's release but could it continue to ride the wave and stay number one Well, if that wasn't clear enough, Hollywood closed out an up-and-down 2023 with Wonka regaining number one at the box office. The New Year's weekend box office lacked a true blockbuster. This time last year, Avatar The Way of the Water was inundating theaters, but instead, we had a wide array of films. Among them, Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, The Boys in the Boat, Migration, Ferrari, The Iron Claw, and Anyone But You. And they all sought to break out over the year's most lucrative box office corridor. The top choice, though, remained Wonka, 
Paul King's musical starring Timothy Chalamet as a young Willy Wonka. In his third weekend, the Warner Brothers release collected an estimated $24 million Friday through Sunday and $31.8 million factoring in estimates for the Monday holiday of New Year's Day, which brings the film's domestic total to $142.5 million. That bested Warner Brothers' own Aquaman and the Lost Kingdom, which, like previous DC superhero films, it's struggling. James Wan's Aquaman sequel, starring Jason Momoa, took in $19.5 million in its second weekend to bring its two-week haul to a very modest $84.7. In third place, Universal Pictures' Migration with $17 million. At number four, The Color Purple, which is the adaptation of the 2005 stage musical from Alice Walker's novel. This debuted last Monday and led all movies on Christmas with $18 million, but throughout the week, it grossed about 50 Pretty cool. Wrapping up the last weekend of 2023 in fifth place is Anyone But You, Columbia's newest release that's kind of loosely based on William Shakespeare's play, Much Ado About Nothing. So here we are in 2024, and it's pretty loaded with upcoming releases that a lot of people are looking forward to. We've got Dune Part 2 and Ghostbusters Frozen Empire due in March. And holy cow, I am excited about the new Ghostbusters. Uh, Furiosa, which is the Mad Max spinoff. And Kingdom of the Planet of the, A- of the Apes coming out in May. Inside Out 2, that one looks fantastic. Bad Boys 4 coming up in June. Despicable Me 4, I didn't even know they were doing a fourth one, but I'm down with the minions. And Deadpool, uh, which is currently actually unnamed, strangely enough. That's coming out in July. We've got Beetlejuice 2, Joker 2, and Gladiator 2 all throughout the rest of the year. And that is just a small snippet of what's to come. This should be a pretty great year for the box office. All right, guys, let's go take a look at some of our odd news for the week. And now for something different. Well, college football bowl season is in full swing. And it's really great to see the players and fans having a little bit of fun. So back on December the 28th, Kansas City football players partook in a unique feast to, ce- to celebrate their postseason victory over North Carolina State. So the celebration occurred after the Wildcats beat the Wolfpack 28-19 in the Pop-Tart Bowl in Orlando, Florida. So go watch the video. All throughout the game, around the sidelines and everything, danced a giant Pop-Tart mascot. It was absolutely adorable, and it was really, really cute. Now... During the post-game celebration, fans and players just stared at this giant toaster that was just above, above this midfield logo in the minutes after the final whistle. So this thing's dangling over the logo. A person wearing a Pop-Tart costume eventually ascended up to the toaster slot, prompting sparks and smokes. This thing starts kind of going off. The mascot then dropped back down into the slot. Seconds later, an edible version of the mascot slid out from the front of the toaster. Wildcats coach Chris Kleeman and his players then started scooping up handfuls of the frosted treat as part of their unique post-game meal. This honestly was one of the most clever post-game events I have ever seen. Congratulations to the Wildcats for the Pop-Tart Bowl win. I hope that thing was delicious. Y'all ate the mascot. Now, here's a question. Y'all, you've lost a possession before, right? I'm talking like your wallet, your phone, keys, maybe your sanity. And I'd say a lot of the time we would find these things, right? But here's a real kind of a fun lost and found story. Workers have been remodeling a movie theater in Atlanta, Georgia, and they found something surprising behind a wall, a wallet that was lost by a patron 65 years ago. A contractor found the old wallet behind a wall at the Plaza Theater and turned it over to the cinema's owner, Chris Escobar. Escobar said the area where the wallet was found was likely a former lost and found area in the manager's office that had long since been hidden by previous renovations. Escobar told CNN it was like a portal back in time, talking about the wallet. 
And then realizing that this has been missing from this family of real people who lived in this neighborhood for 65 years, can you imagine if we found them? Well, he actually ended up doing some online research and discovered that the wallet's owner, Floyd Colbreth, died back, um, back in 2005 at the age of 87. But he was actually able to contact her daughter, Thea Colbreth Chamberlain, age 71. Chamberlain told the Washington Post, I don't even know how to say how flabbergasted I am. It took a while for it to sink in. Chamberlain was only six years old when her mother lost the wallet back in 1958. The contents of the wallet include old family photos, a library card, and some raffle tickets. She said looking through the wallet brought memories of her mother flooding back. Chamberlain said she was in there. I know it sounds kind of hokey, but she really was. So not only did they find this mom's wallet, they found some pretty amazing memories for her daughter. That is fantastic. Well, that was a heck of a way to end 2023 and start 2024. Taylor's breaking some more records. We've got some owners getting fined. We got some high school coaches up in the strip club some bad breaths, some new lawsuits, it's a Wonka box office, and we're eating Pop-Tarts after football games. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me today. I do want to remind you that I include the links to all of my sources in the comments so you can see what I see and more. Don't forget to drop a comment or send us an email if there is a story that you want us to cover. Join us next time as we check out the latest in entertainment news. Remember guys, stay comfy in that starter zone. This is Amanda. Good luck and have fun. You have been listening to The Starter Zone with Amanda. I am Raven. We thank you for your time and support. Without you, we simply would not be. Please hit that like and subscribe button and visit us on Facebook and Twitter at The Starter Zone. Have we missed something? Have something to say? Leave us a comment or send us audio clips for your chance to be on the show. We invite you to come back for more exciting news and commentary on the world around you. See you next time in the Starter Zone.